This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Barcelona. I'm tagging along here with my partner, who is attending the Latin American Studies Association conference. And so while I'm here, I decided to convene a few experts on Spanish and Catalan politics to try to figure out just what is going on here. A Spanish government dominated by the right-wing Partido Popular is not only persecuting Catalan independence leaders, but also sentencing rappers to prison for their lyrics. Meanwhile, the independence movement has not only left-wing support in Catalonia, but also is in significant part led by conservative politicians who helped push through austerity measures in the wake of the economic crisis. At the same time, in Barcelona and throughout Spain, radical mayors are turning their cities into laboratories for radical democracy. It's a lot, so I have three guests today to help me understand it all. Carlos Del Clos is a sociologist, researcher, and editor for Roar magazine, and the author of Hope is a Promise, From the Indignados to the Rise of Podemos in Spain. Pequer Seguin is a professor of Iberian Studies at John Hopkins, and currently completing a book on the cultural history of the Great Recession in Spain. He writes essays and criticism for The Nation, Slate, Dissent, and other publications. Finally, Kate Shea Baird lives in Barcelona and does research and advocacy related to local democracy and decentralization. Before we get rolling, we have a newish weekly newsletter for our supporters at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And without further delay, here's the show. 
Carlos Del Close, Kate Shea Baird, and Bekir Seguin, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. I want to start by asking you, Carlos, to lay out just the basic facts of where politics in Catalonia and Spain stand right now. A pro-independence regional government in Catalonia organized a referendum, and in response, Spain's right-wing government, led by Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, unleashed a brutal police crackdown, and the Catalan government then declared independence, and Madrid took direct control of the Catalan government and prosecuted independence leaders. Where do things stand today? Well, things stand today in a very messy place, um, as they've been for the last six years in Catalonia. Um, In a way, they stand in the exact same place that they were after the 2015 elections, that is with a uh, pro-independence set of parties that has about 48% of the vote of the population, and with a more heterogeneous uh, set of parties uh, that are kind of against at least the unilateral approach to independence that the the pro-independence parties have had um, that have about 52% of the votes uh, at this stage. Um, We know from surveys and polls that, um, you know, Catalonia is very evenly split on the question of independence and that there's this middle ground of folks that... um, you know, are are kind of just in favor of voting and don't have a real hard position. So this this kind of sets up this uh, situation that we have right now. Since the October the first uh, referendum, what's happened? There have been another another set of elections, which I just kind of mentioned the results now, where there were important movements within the two blocks, the you know the pro independence block and the kind of pro Spain I'd say or unionist block. Um, there was kind of a shift towards um, Junts per Catalunya, which was kind of Puigdemont, the the Catalan president's party, largely made up of the right-wing nationalist party. Um, And then within the pro-Spain bloc, there was a shift uh, towards Ciudadanos, which is a a Spanish nationalist party um, that poses as liberal, uh, but we know them very well here in Catalonia and know that they are a right-wing party and that, um, you know, they, 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 they have some very unpleasant, unsavory characters within their ranks, let's say. So since then, what, what else has happened? Um, there's been a, a, several of the Catalan politicians have been jailed for their uh, disobedience. And Puigdemont is in Germany fighting extradition. That's correct. And the Catalan president uh, is in Germany fighting extradition uh, for the same reason that some of his other, uh, some of the other members of the government uh, are currently in jail. Spain has also jailed two uh, prominent members of the of the social movements for Catalan independence, which is particularly atrocious, as they, you know, had no political, uh, institutional real responsibility in in what happened, at least not not at the level of government, let's say. Um, and uh, and it's not just Puigdemont, for instance, that's on on the lam, so to speak. It's uh, it's also Ana Gabriel of the Coup, the radical left uh, pro independence party, and um, and yeah, and I think it's we're seeing right now some of the very we're seeing we're seeing some of the very repressive measures that the Spanish gag law and penal code uh, laid out and approved um, in the aftermath of the Indignados movement. We're seeing how that plays out in a in a strong, uh, you know, institutional confrontation. 
Um, so, so that kind of gets us to sort of the chaotic situation that we have now. Catalonia just named a president. Uh, Puigdemont kind of identified his successor. Um, and it, and it was that way. He had to name uh, the successor because that's how they could get the support of the whole pro-independence coalition. And he named a man named Kim Torra, who is uh, a very big shift away from the sort of civic nationalism that Catalan independence, uh, the Catalan independence movement has exhibited until now, and something of a more identitarian uh, some would say mm, pseudo-racist, ethno-nationalistic uh, ethno uh, take on things, um, which, you know, is an argument that's kind of, uh, on the one hand, overstated or, or, or um, overly emphasized by the Spanish right wing to kind of, you know, the Spanish right wing that's been, you know, that like kills immigrants on the border and things like that are now suddenly talking about xenophobia as if it concerns them. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, the man does express some very, very problematic views about not not just Spanish people, but but other Catalans who self-identify as Spanish or who have Spanish descent. And so it's a very weird, very strong shift in, in sort of what's taken place um, in, in Catalan politics in terms of, you know, the, the way that the... the the conflict is is being framed by the the two hardest extremes in in the debate. Kate, yeah, I think uh, Carlos has explained uh, really well the situation. I would just add two things. One is the kind of emotional situation, or at a more kind of base level, that I think there's a real sense at the moment of exhaustion and of um, kind of being worn out and having people in jail. Who haven't been convicted and in a lot of ways haven't really done anything wrong. Um, the, the months and months of tension and violence and there's a real sense of kind of um, of, of exhaustion in, in, in on both sides really. And, and the other is that now we're kind of for the first time at a point where the independence movement has lost the initiative and doesn't have a plan anymore. We've had years of setting these milestones of a referendum or plebiscitary elections or in 18 months we'll be independent. And now they've actually um, declared independence and it hasn't worked and they're complete, in complete disarray. Uh, there's a real sense of kind of, um, of, of confusion and of, of, of no real clear direction or path forward. And uh, yeah. so I'd... I agree again with uh, with uh, my friends and colleagues here about their description of Catalonia, and I just say that the next point on the horizon to me seems to be uh, this fall when uh, all of these prisoners are supposedly going to come up for trial, right? And some of these some of these people are being held uh, without bail unconditionally. Others have been uh, left uh, to to return to civil society until their trial and then still others are, are in exile so it seems like the next point on the horizon will be will be these trials in in the fall and it's really i think an open question as to what happens until then is it going to be another kind of build-up as we saw uh last fall a build-up to to a certain kind of culminating point or is this just going to be a kind of steady decline of as what kate was saying a steady decline in about what the the project is of, of the independence movement. Are they going to push forward or is it just going to be kind of dr going to drift off? 
And to to clarify, does Madrid still maintain direct control over the regional government? Yes. So Madrid uh, still has Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution in place, which allows them to uh, control basically all of of Catalan Catalan institutions. Um, And so what happened uh, just this uh, this past week, weekend, I guess on Monday, was that uh, there was some pressure uh, on the side of the PNV with the Partido Nacional Vasco, which is the national uh, kind of center-right to right-wing uh, Basque party, which tried to put some pressure on uh, the Partido Popular of Mariano Rajoy uh, to uh, basically eliminate article or to retract Article 155, their use of Article 155, if they were to uh, sign on to the, the budget, which would run for the next two years or so. Uh, but in the end, the PNV uh, caved, and they signed on to the budget without... And they sold uh, out their nationalist compatriots in e- Exactly, Catalonia. exactly. And so Article 155 is still in place, and the Partido Popular basically had a two-year extension of its of its mandate thanks to the approval of the economic budget. It's kind of the thing with nationalism. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into that quite a bit. Um, and... I want to dive right into the the question that I think a lot of my listeners are most curious about the answer to, which is how the left should assess this all. On on the one hand, clearly Rajoy's repression and indeed his entire administration are absolutely repugnant. But how can independence be a progressive thing, one, in a region that is the second wealthiest in Spain, and two, when it's led by a left-right alliance that is overwhelmingly more right than left in terms of the current power dynamics, as I understand them. Um, and and three, and as a result of the, the, the last factor that I mentioned, in the way that national questions seems to, seem to push other issues to the sidelines. Um, Everyone. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Kate, you want to take I'll 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 give it a go. It's a complicated one, and I think um, anyone who sees it, the answer is really clear as as to the role of the relationship between the two is is not quite seeing the full picture. I think um, on the one hand, it's not just um, that there's a conservative government in Madrid. Uh, the argument from people on the pro-independence left is that the very Spanish state is still in many ways a relic of Francoism and that a lot of the institutions, the judiciary, as we've seen recently uh, with the you know sentences for rappers for criticising the king, um, that the whole institution of the state, whoever's in power, somehow is um, anathema to any kind of progressive uh, politics. And actually, a lot of progressive laws from the Catalan parliament uh, relating to social justice uh, have been struck down by the Spanish Supreme Court. So there's a lot of people with a very uh, valid argument in sure. Catalonia saying uh, we're trying to deal with energy poverty, we're trying to deal with housing, we're trying to deal with all of these issues, we want to take in refugees, and uh, in, if, if, unless we leave Spain, that's not going to be possible. So they deny that those issues are not related to independence. And this is what Podemos calls the, the regime of... Nin- uh, 1978. 1978. Right. Um, but then in reality, so there's definitely a, a progressive potential. But on the other hand, the, the facts, the, 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 the reality is that uh, 
what the pro-independence movement, even if it's a majority left progressive movement, uh, has been co-opted by a right-wing corrupt uh, pro-austerity party uh, that has remained in power thanks to this movement for years and has had no success at moving towards independence. It has actually brought us steps back in terms of authority, uh, or, um, in terms of autonomy and and self-rule. So one thing is the theory and another is the kind of actual consequences of what's happened. Abeke. So I'll say that the, my understanding of the coup's position, to add to what Kate was saying, is also that they uh, often talk about this uh, alliance that they have with, with the center-right and or the right-wing party, uh, Convergencia, is that it's a temporary one, right? It's a temporary solution just until they achieve independence. First and, the national question, then everything else will be fought over. Exactly, and that's the logic behind it. And that is, to many people, is a very convincing argument because, hey, we need a new state in order to be able to conduct politics uh, on the level that, that we need to in order to, to, to embrace municipalism, in order to, to uh, kind of fortify the town council uh, theory that they have. Um, so this temporary idea, I think, is, is, is really important. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think um, the question of the left and, and this term of, of self-determination, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I mean, it goes back to Lenin. Um, he struggled with this quite specifically. Um, and in the Spanish context, I think there's, there, there's an issue there because the issue of centralization is a wedge issue for the Spanish left. Um, people in the, in the sort of stateless nations uh, of Spain, the Basque, um, in Catalonia and Galicia, left-wing people there generally favor more uh, decentralization of the state. And in Andalusia, they're a little bit more favorable to it. But in the rest of Spain, left-wing people are more centralist. And so if you can drive this wedge uh, amongst the left, then then you can make it very difficult for left-wing alternatives to emerge. And I think that was exactly the political calculation that the right-wing nationalists made in 2012 when they pulled out the flag, because until then they had been partners with Rajoy's government in approving, they had been pioneers of austerity. They implemented austerity in Catalonia before the rest of Spain. So while independence is now a left-right alliance in Catalonia, its origins are weirdly sort of in a right-right alliance on the federal level. That's right. It's it's basically Convergencia Unio were hemorrhaging votes in the polls as they were approving austerity and as the Indignados movement in Barcelona was the most dangerous Indignados movement in all of the state because we were, you know, we were the ones that were blocking the parliament and keeping representatives MPs out from actually physically being able to vote and put uh, austerity. You know, Artur Mas had to enter the parliament in a helicopter. That's the former uh, Catalan leader. That he was a former president of Catalonia that was in the right-wing nationalist party. So, you know, once he starts to see that they're hemorrhaging votes um, towards, you know, uh, the, around the summer of 2012, you know, he starts to see that, um, you know, this alliance with the Pepe is very damaging. So he pulls out the one difference between the two, which is this flag. And so the, the initial deal there was to sabotage this emerging left, uh, this very sort of you know, revolutionary even left that was that was that was in the streets at the time, and so I think they successfully wielded this as a wedge issue, um, and have created some serious problems for the left. But since then, good things have happened in, in the left in Spain, and I think the question of independence isn't just one of nationalism, 
it's about what the left's really about. I mean, are we just about redistribution? Are we about equality? Um, are we about challenging power as such and decentralizing power as such? And I think this is, these are real important and, and interesting questions because the right's all about self-interest. Um, and if the right is all about self-interest, they can take any frame and turn it into their sort of frame. But, um, but I think this is, this is, this is a, a big issue and it's not a coincidence as a result that this idea of democracy that the Indignados were using were what the Catalan pro-independence side was using in the fall of, of 2017 as their main frame saying, we just want to vote, we just want to vote. The big shift for them and the kind of lack of enthusiasm and the, you know, that I think has predominated uh, since October and the retrenchment that we've seen in Catalonia since then has to do with the fact that they went from saying, yeah, we just want to vote to let's go unilaterally with independence. And that kind of, you know, goes against this whole, you know, democratic rhetoric that they had been using up until then. Especially because, ironically, the reason that they control the regional government is because there's a similar uh, undemocratic setup here as there is in the U.S., where you can win the most vote, you can win fewer votes, but gain more seats. Is that right? Well, it, no, it's not comparable to the U.S. because here it, it's a parliamentary system that's kind of more proportional. So you, it's not so much that. I mean, you need to form a majority coalition to govern. So you can get, you can be the largest minority and govern. Um, but didn't pro, I've, maybe I got this wrong, but I, th I thought I read that pro-independence in parties got fewer votes but more seats in the general that in, in the Catalan parliament, yeah. It, I think that it's, I mean, it's similar throughout Spain too. There's a, it, so in during uh, the general elections in, in 2015, there was a vote, for example, for the for Izquierda Unida, which was which is the the party that integrates the Spanish Communist Party. They got a million votes, but yet they only got one representative. Whereas you had other parties that had, let's say, five or six million votes, yet had something on the order of of sixty representatives. And so there's not a one to one. It, it, uh, it's because it's constitu it's constituency based. That, no, that's definitely true. Yeah, yes. okay. yeah, yeah. But yeah. in Cat it's not as undemocratic as the Americans. No, no, but nothing it, it's, is. <laughs> but it's different because it, I mean, this was. That, that it's a it's a it's a different kind of setup in Catalonia. I mean, it's still Spanish electoral law, actually. But um, the idea here was that yeah, forty eight percent of the votes had the majority of the seats, but it was a slim majority. Sure. And you know, it it's a very fragmented parliament as well. So it's kind of it's hard to play the game. They, I mean, so in a sense, they were overrepresented. Um, but you know, it's it's not as dramatic as like the electoral college in the US, I would I would say personally. Yeah, but the, the problem is, is when you're trying to use your um, regional parliament elections as a, a, a referendum, because they won't allow you to do a referendum. And so then it's very important whether you're m measuring a majority of votes or seats. Exactly. And they kind of implied that it would be votes. And then we, what they, when they won a majority of seats, they said, oh, actually, it's all about seats and we've won. Um, but then they kind of didn't declare independence then because obviously they realized that actually having a majority of seats and not votes wasn't enough, which was then when they went back to the idea of a unilateral referendum, which never works because the anti-independence people just boycott it. So it's this we're in this kind of uh, cycle of um, Groundhog Day. Uh, yeah, useless uh, exercises of which which each time also um reduces the likelihood of there ever being a binding referendum because it's just getting to the point where uh, there's going to be very little enthusiasm for it by on any side for actually 
going through this whole exercise again, even when it's for real. No, and I would just say that especially this entrenchment is happening with the the rise of Ciudadanos, right, which is the the right-wing party that kind of fashions itself as a centrist party, but has really stoked the flames of Spanish. Or the, the Podemos of the, the the center or something. Right, exactly. That's how, that's how they've called it, but I mean, it's it's everything but Podemos of the center because it's, its project is a, a very kind of technocratic neoliberalism on the one hand, but now we've seen in the last uh, few months that it's also Spanish nationalism and which in Catalonia has been seen since 2006, since the founding of the party. There was a very interesting article by Corey Robin recently where he talks about how uh, people in the political center are actually the ones that are the most hostile to democracy. And I think there's no better example, at least in you know the global north, than Ciudadanos. You know, they combine the fascist identitarian politics of you know national identification and all this kind of stuff with uh, just... Um, you know, a technocratic approach to governance that just kind of presents things as like, you know, it's just, we're just providing solutions, you know? So they common blend sense. the two things. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's common sense, but like, um, not in a, not in an emancipatory kind of like people, you know, asserting a sort of asserting social bonds and, you know, on top of political institutional considerations, but just kind of common sense in terms of like, you know, just shit you say in a bar. Right, like turned into a political party, and they're like well dressed and less less frumpy than the Pepe, right? And I, I saw someone. I think they write, all, they're all runners. Yeah, it, it, uh, so, I don't know if it was someone in this room, but someone I read said, uh, wrote that they were like a Pepe with better abs. That was me. Uh, yeah. That was really good. Proud, proud. That was that one. very nice line. And I'd, I'd also say that one of the things that Theodos has has done well is to distance itself from the Catholic Church, right? And for many young people, especially, I think that distancing from the Catholic Church while maintaining some idea of Spanish nationalism is something that people really buy into. And the Pepe is basically, I mean, a, in in certain sense, a subservient. Uh, uh, entity to, to to the Catholic Church, to these priests who want to uh, basically eliminate all of the laws that were passed in the mid two thousands for on abortion, on gay rights, on on social issues, on progressive social issues. Um, speaking of the Pepe, I want to ask about uh, before we move on to from the independence uh, question, though, like the reality of the independence in Catalan politics. I don't think we'll actually ever truly move on from the independence question throughout this interview because it looms large. But Rajoy, in how he played this conflict, he sent the, are they called the Mossos, the local police, uh, uh, refused to intervene to repress the referendum, it seemed. And so Rajoy sent in the Guardia Civil, and that's who executed the, carried out the brutal violent repression in the streets. On the surface level, the repression and opposition to any form of regional autonomy it was 2012 that he vetoed uh, or, or or blocked a measure granting increased fiscal autonomy, I think, to Catalonia. No, that was the Spanish courts in 2010. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, they struck down the statute of autonomy that had been approved by the socialists and the Catalan and everybody. everybody. You know, that voted but based on an appeal by the Pepe exactly. that yeah. bought that. So, so, yeah, so his opposition to the regional autonomy and this repression, on a surface level, it seems counterproductive because it would seem to drive Catalan commitment to independence to intensify when you're being repressed and you feel like your back's up against the law. I mean, the if you look at, you know, opinion polls in support of Catalan independence, it, it skyrockets from like, what's 
where was it at? 2012. 2012. It, it goes where from was about it? 20% to 40% in July 2012. Yeah, that's, enor- that's enormous. So all of this on one on the surface level seems counterproductive on Rajoy's part. But on the other hand, the popular party has never been very popular in Catalonia. So is this approach more geared towards strengthening his own base on a national level while while dividing the left? Certainly. I mean, I think... I, I think the Catalan, the question of Catalan independence is, is like, as I mentioned before, it's a very stabilizing debate. I mean, in Catalonia, it generates a lot of instability and insecurity and all of this. But, the, but Rajoy's strategy is to sacrifice Catalonia and say, I'm never going to win or lose an election based on what Catalonia votes in a national election. Because I've never, it used to either go socialist, now it kind of goes in Podemos' favor. Maybe this time it'll go in favor of Esquerra Republicana. But it's never going to go Just like Trump's not going to ever win California. Exactly. So you can use it as a punching bag. You can just use it as a punching bag to kind of drum up support in, in, in other places where, these places where centralism amongst the Spanish left, I'm saying, I was saying earlier, is more hegemonic. And so you can kind of make yourself out to be this defender of, of Spanish unity. But of course, now they have this challenger on the right who is basically goading them into like, yeah, do it more, you know, uh, this kind of thing. And so... Yeah, you've got an arms race now. So it's <laughs> it's their typical like mainstream anti-Catalanism uh, is now not enough because they've got an electoral competitor who is uh, even more anti-Catalan. Any, yeah, and during the whole kind of September, October, November period... Uh, the whole time, Ciudadanos was saying, "You're not being tough enough," um, you know, and so they, 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 they have an electoral incentive. To, and they're from Catalonia, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> a, 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 a taxi driver who turned out to be extraordinarily right wing the other day, not to sound like Thomas Friedman on my socialist podcast, but said, uh, "You know, I, I asked if like Rajoy, she was clearly anti-independence, asking if like, well." Roy hasn't helped matters, um, has he? And she, I think, misunderstood me because she responded, well, he has a minority government and so he's weak. If he was stronger, he would have uh, acted like Aznar and sent in the army and crushed it. I sent the military <laughs> police, which is, you know. I mean, the sad, the sad thing about it is that uh, beating up Catalans is a vote winner in, in at least some sections of Spain. I mean, that's the tragic thing. And I think... Um, the other thing that's been really destructive is that on the one hand, you've got this electoral competition at Spanish level of who can be toughest against Catalan independence. And then in the independence movement, you have three parties who are also competing with one another to show who who's the most committed uh, to pushing it all the way. So if you had maybe one pro-independence party like you've got in Scotland... You wouldn't have that, but you have each of them saying, "No, I'm going to declare unilateral independence." And if you're if if you step back from the precipice, then it it's all going to be your fault that we're not independent. So they're all pushing each other, and then in the Spanish side, they're all uh, in an arms race. And so there's no one's really thinking about what's actually best for the country. And and a brief a brief caveat on the Scottish question: the merits of Scottish independence aside, I'm pretty skeptical. The SNP, to its great credit, became a pretty coherently anti-neoliberal party and 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 articulated a uh independence as a vision of breaking with 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 tory britain um yeah i was just going to say that i think another thing that's another consequence of this kind of doubling down on spanish nationalism has been that that it shifted not only the partido popular and ciudadanos the kind of traditional right-wing parties or new right-wing parties further to the right but it's also pushed the PSOE, the Spanish Socialist Party, 
which was in government during the early years uh, and and subsequent years after the transition to to democracy, and then uh, had a very progressive first mandate in in government during the 2000s, and has subsequently become extremely neoliberalized, and now has become just almost just as Spanish nationalist as as some other parties. So, for example, and I'd say this is just in the past few months, but uh, Pedro Sanchez, the leader of the Socialist Party, has done an interesting switch, which in the fall, so in the fall, he was really advocating some kind of opening up, now very tepid, very kind of uh, hesitant, but nonetheless, an opening up of a, a discussion about reforming the Constitution of 1978. And to de-escalate in, the current tensions. Right, exactly. That was his negotiation with the Partido Popular back, back in the fall uh, over the, the Article 155. If you guys want to do this Article 155, okay, then we are going to put on the table the discu- a discussion about reforming the Spanish Constitution. But in the past few months, he's done a complete 180. And he said, no, no, in fact, we're not even going to ignore the question of reforming the Spanish Constitution. In fact, we're going to re we want to put on the table uh, a reform of the penal code in order to make it more difficult for uh, independence movements or independence voices from these regions in Spain to to carry out any kind of political program, whether that's referendum, whether that's uh, what other kind of representation like it's he's done a complete 180 and shifted the persuade with him to to the right. I want to zoom in a little to Barcelona politics and something that, unlike the independence movement, really hasn't received so much attention in the international press is the municipalist movement, which is happening all over Spain, but Barcelona is arguably maybe the epicenter. The mayor here is Ada Calau, who has a real radical left agenda and comes out of a militant anti-eviction movement. Kate, can you explain the... Barcelona in Camus movement, who Calau is, what she's been up to as mayor, and then more generally, it's like a five-part question, more generally, what the municipalist movement is? I'll try. Um, So the municipalist movement, uh, as you said, it's present in most of the main cities in Spain in government. And uh, in the same cities where there was this Occupy movement in Spain a few years ago. And basically in each city, what happened was people from social movements uh, kind of got together uh, with uh, kind of minority left or new left uh, political parties and set up these kind of new organizations that tried to put local, uh, concrete local goals at the centre of an electoral project. So in May 2015, these new platforms, which have different names in different cities, uh, most of them won the municipal election. And they're coalitions. Yes. Um, they're, kind of, they're kind of coalitions, but uh, the, the, the reason why Barcelona is, is uh, kind of held up as a model is that it's not a mere coalition Uh, There's actually a new umbrella organization that's been set up, uh, which allowed a lot of people uh, like myself who weren't involved in any of the uh, component political parties to get involved and kind of feel comfortable in creating something new. Um, So at the current time, um, most of the major Spanish cities are now governed by people who have no previous 
institutional experience um, and who are not members of any of the major political uh, parties. And Ada Colau is the mayor of Barcelona. She was previously uh, one of the spokespeople and founders of the PA uh, anti-eviction platform, which kind of um, mobilized people to uh, direct action to stop evictions and also negotiate with the banks and created a whole network of, of housing rights uh, platforms all across Spain. And the one thing that um, is also worth mentioning is that both her government and most of these other city governments are governing in my minorities. So although they have quite radical, ambitious agendas, um, it's not uh, at the actual act of governing and, and getting that agenda through is, is, is more difficult than, um, than one would want. <laughs> And as a quick side note on on Colau, there's a there's a documentary that I hear is very good that I haven't watched yet, but there's also a, a very short video of her calling a chief banking lobbyist sitting uh, just to the side of her at a I think a, a, a congressional hearing uh, a criminal, and it's like a pretty beautiful piece of right. That's of, kind of, of when media. she kind of shot to national <laughs> attention. Um, and it's became like, this, this man is a criminal and you should be treating him as such. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I think, um, yeah, the municipalist movement, what's what's interesting about it is um, because it's there was there was all of these social movements, right, that came out of the Indignados Occupy um, kind of system and. And and a, a lot of these movements did a lot. I mean, they were the they were stopping evictions. They were um, uh, develop uh, taking ca- corruption cases uh, against the banks, um, and really like doing a lot. And they there came a moment where they they reached a glass ceiling, right? So how this there's only so much we can do from outside the institutions. And there was an actual debate about, well, if we go into institutional politics, are we going to go into local, regional, national? And um, and you've got the, the national version in a way is, is Podemos, um, but Podemos hasn't been able to win elections. The municipalist uh, networks, platforms have, thanks in large part to the social movements and those networks and that had been built up over years at city level, they were able to win elections and and govern and actually start to make uh, changes, however limited and small, because there's also limits to what you can do in municipal government. Yeah, so what, so what are the possibilities and limits of socialism in one city or in many cities? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's it's first kind of important to consider that that Spain has actually kind of a, a, a deeper tradition of, of municipalism than, than kind of what began in 2015. Um, there have been, been past experiments with libertarian municipalism, libertarian in the Spanish sense, oh, which means anarchist, <laughs> not gun-toting maniacs, um, talking about sovereign citizens. Uh, no, it's not that exactly. Um, it, was, it was more anarchistic. Um, and so this, you know, Murray Bookchin's style of uh, libertarian municipalism was, was actually the, the original platform of a party we've been kind of talking about here for a little bit, which was the CUP, the, the radical left pro-independence Catalans. They were not a national Catalan-level Catalan party. They were a strictly municipalist party that 
operated in the logic of platforms, municipal platforms, and have governed in small towns in Catalonia for a while. And also, um, the, the, the Second Republic was declared after municipal elections. That's so right. Mu- municipal elections in Spain have always had this kind of charge. And can you explain that just briefly? Because <laughs> and, and Ada Calau, um, at her, I believe it was her victory rally, people were, were waving the flag of the Spanish Republic, the Second. the Second Republic, sorry, in the same place that it was declared. Right. So... Uh, just before the civil war, uh, there was a republic declared in in Spain and in Catalonia, and that was after pro republican parties uh, won majorities in all of the all of the city councils, and which kind of de- delegitimized the the monarchy, and so it was basically a revolution uh, from municipal level, uh, which then ultimately led to a, a civil war. But um, well, it led to a new constitution first, right? And it ran the king out of the country. And then the right, who are not very good at taking electoral defeat, decided that they would just perform their coup uh, with the second victory of the of the Popular Front in thirty six. Yeah, so, I mean, some some listeners might not. We can't go deep into this at all. Right. But that that they're that after the that the civil war was won by fascists who governed this country for well after the end of World War Two, when most fascists. We're out of power. Right. I mean, very quickly, all we can, all, all I need to say is that so, whereas the fascist loss in, in kind of definitively in, in the 40s uh, after World War II in Spain, they held power until 1978. Um, after 1978, there's the transition. So when we talk about the, the regime crisis or the crisis of the regime of 1978 in Spain, what we're talking about is this kind of very um, precarious set of agreements to peacefully go from a dictatorship to a constitutional monarchy uh, without ruffling too many feathers. And one of the interesting things is that it's really uh, in 2011 with the Indignados movement that the critique of the regime of 1978 becomes popular. So before, in like the late 2000s, it was made as a kind of a critique of historiography, right, that we actually really need to understand uh, or go back to the transition to understand how these negotiations between the fascists who were previously in power and then the Socialist Party and the Communist Party who wanted to establish uh, uh, a democracy, how those negotiations took place. But in, the Indignados movement actually brought this academic debate into the public sphere, and it, after that it's gotten more and more traction. So in terms of the how the municipalist movement is playing out, in, in Barcelona in particular, and also in, in other cities in Spain more generally, what are the the concrete issues that they are taking on that they, ha- they, that, that they have the power to have an impact on on the local level? I know in Barcelona, housing and tourism are two, two key ones. Yeah, I think there's, there's two levels. One is what they're actually doing at city level. So in Barcelona, one of the issues was regulating mass tourism uh, and, and the relationship of that to housing. Uh, and it is massive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the whole Airbnb phenomenon and the use of residential buildings uh, for tourist accommodation, reducing all, an already limited rental stock and pushing up prices, um, but also the issue of these empty apartments that are in the hands of banks. Um, so, for example, the city government here has uh, both fined banks for having housing empty for speculation purposes for over two years, um, and also uh, threatened to expropriate directly the the, the, the apartments. Um, and there's 
a lot of issues relating to public space, the use of uh, taking back public space from cars, uh, dealing with uh, pollution. Um, so there's and then a lot of kind of issues relating to inequalities between neighborhoods. Uh, there's a seven year life expectancy difference between uh, some of the neighborhoods in in Barcelona. So dealing a lot with with those kind of issues and, and also bringing a lot of the anti-corruption agenda to the city hall, transparency, uh, new transparency kind of requirements and um, a new democratic participation mechanism. So that's at the city level. But then um, what I was saying before about there being this whole layer of government that's kind of out of the hands of, of the major parties, these cities are also doing a job of, of opposition at national level. So I'd say that they're, as an opposition force, they're almost as, or perhaps even more uh, important than the parliamentary opposition. Um, than Podemos. Uh, for example, um, because they're in government, so they've got the power to actually do things and to actually work as a network and say, okay, the Spanish government isn't taking in refugees. We cities call for you know them to take in refugees or... Um, or what other issues, the issue of um, the Ley Montoro, which is a kind of centralizing uh, austerity law, the cities of kind of uh, working together to uh, oppose that law and, 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 and recuperate kind of local sovereignty. So there's a kind of, they have a role at local level, but also on the, the national stage, at least in a kind of lobbying sense to kind of bring those progressive issues to the national agenda. I mean, I think the Barcelona city government has done a lot and, and the municipal, the radical municipal governments have done quite a bit in Spain and they're certainly the most progressive thing going on in the country right now. But I think it's also important to think about the limits, which are not only administrative, but have a lot to do with kind of the social level. Um, and I think they've had big problems uh, in taking decisions where kind of, you know, the social kind of uh, what was socially popular was not was not what was truly kind of emancipatory or in line with their values. So they've had a a big problem not just in Barcelona but in Madrid with street vendors um, and sort of this this question, which is you know something that you know a left a radical left government does not want to <laughs> pursue street vendors doesn't want to uh, pursue poor immigrant informal workers uh, in the streets. Um, at the same time, the right instrumentalizes these things um, and puts them on the, the front page and makes and kind of amplifies the fact that it's not politically expedient, you know, to, to go around defending. It's uh, like the New York Post and de Blasio. Uh, I don't know if you follow the New York News at all, but the idea that like they, they took a photo of like one homeless guy peeing in the street and we're like, this is what happens when you tell the NYPD they can't murder black people. Well, this is that's exactly right. But this isn't, I mean, that's the thing. It happened in New York. It happened in in the Second Republic. The same newspaper would put these issues of public space and, oh my gosh. The very same. Yeah, 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 the very same ones. And they would say, oh, they're not murdering or, or you know, expelling poor, pe poor people from, this, from public space. Uh, this is what happens when you let the liberals win or when you let the left and the socialists and the communists win, right? Um, so, so this discourse kind of happened. They did that again in 2004. So it's a very, you know, it's a very, this is a question that the left has to deal with. This was also, this was also an issue in Bolivia as well, street vendors and workers in public space. So this, this idea of policing the poor, 
when you when you kind of take power based on a kind of a populist sort of program or a populist discourse or something like this or a citizen centered discourse you kind of become beholden to sort of citizen common sense which is a lot more alienated than kind of where we'd like it to be if we're you know on the radical left or whatever so i think they've been challenged by this now of course because law, law and order campaigns are always a lot more bottom up fueled or often at least, a lot more bottom-up fuel than many on the left would like to admit. Well, exactly. This bottom-up kind of ideology, I mean, let's not forget that bottom-up also means nimbyism. It means law and order sometimes. It means punitive populism, as, as, as some might call it. So I think this is this is important. Kate? I think the, the other thing to bear in mind is, um, so because a lot of these uh, municipalists, well, all of them, the, these municipalist platforms came from social movements, there's certain things that... Uh, social movements are pretty prepared to do. So you've got your ecologists who know all about uh, urban, you know, greening urban uh, environments. You've got your uh, participatory democracy people who know all about, you know, running an assembly and doing an online participation platform. Which social movement has uh, like experts in policing? Like from social movements, we're used to just saying, fuck the police, right? We don't really tend to have those kind of people in our, in our, in our circles who are like one of us, but really know a lot about uh, those issues. So, or like your, your, your person who's like a, an, in, uh, an expert on the, the internal uh, workings of, of the public institutions, like at the very high levels, you might not have those high level civil servants. Uh, right. Um, and so um, actually um, one of the things that these platforms have to negotiate is their areas of of lack of expertise and often having to rely on people for the for expertise in those areas who are not so politically uh close um and that's something that i think any movement that's thinking about standing for office should really bear in mind it's like how are you going to deal with those areas where your only political position previously has been we're against this that um really quickly that, that, that it's a similar situation in the u.s right now particularly in philadelphia where i've done a lot of reporting where larry krasner uh, a radical defense and civil rights lawyer is now the district attorney, which is a, a great victory, but his job every day is still putting people in prison. Um, and so if you're going to run the state, as long as it is a state, you also own its repressive apparatuses. And we have to think responsibly and complicatedly about beyond just like, oh, we don't like those things. Just really quickly, I think one of the interesting things that Podemos, when it was founded in 2014, put on the table was this idea, or one of the mechanisms that they tried to use was this idea of, of circles, right? Local kind of town councils, either organized by uh, identity or organized by region. And one of the thing, one of the town councils that they established was in fact dedicated to Fuerzas Armadas, right? To the armed forces. And now this political experiment didn't really work <laughs> out very well. But I think, the, I think yeah. the idea was there. And I think that this idea, of course, didn't originate with Podemos. It happened in the Indignados. It happened even previous to that, but the idea of maybe establishing some kind of network or some kind of uh, uh, committee that would focus on these issues that are not often focused on focused uh, or do not often receive attention by uh, social movements that they would actually attack those kind of head on and not wait for something to catastrophic to happen in order to respond to it. I'd, I'd also just like to pick up on what Carlos was saying about um, you know the kind of uh, mainstream opinion. Uh, possibly being a, a, a limit or an, a, a problem for these governments. I think, on the other hand, um, what can be a real strength is when there is a really strong social movement outside of the city hall 
especially when they're in, in a minority that can push the opposition to potentially support more radical positions. And that's certainly been the case in the case of, of tourism, where over the last few years in Barcelona, in almost every neighborhood, uh, a local assembly or platform has been set up to uh, protest against mass tourism and defend the right to housing. And so there's this whole network. And then there's an umbrella network called the ABTS um, across the city of all of these different networks that is really pushing uh, to um, expose what Airbnb is doing, to demand more restrictive regulations. And actually the government's uh, original proposal for regulating uh tourist accommodation was actually made more radical thanks to the fact that these movements pushed from the outside the opposition parties to go into a more restrictive uh, direction. And is that policy now in place? Yeah. And a few years ago, there was there was just one uh, narrative in, in Barcelona, which is more tourism is better. And now the opposition parties, because of this pressure from the streets, can see that there's votes in saying, no, actually, uh, we're going to regulate this. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. The extradition of terror suspects reveals the worst features of the security state. In 2012, five Muslim men were extradited from Britain to the U.S. to face terrorism-related charges. Fahad Hashmi was deported a few years before. Abid Nasir and Harun Aswat would follow shortly. They were subject to pre-trial incarceration for up to 17 years, police brutality, secret trials, secret evidence, long-term detention and solitary confinement, citizenship deprivation, and more. Deport, Deprive, Extradite draws on their stories as starting points to explore what they illuminate about the disciplinary features of state power and its securitizing conditions. In looking at these stories of Muslim men accused of terrorism-related offenses, Nisha Kapoor explores how these racialized subjects are dehumanized, made non-human both in terms of how they are represented and via the disciplinary techniques used to expel them. She explores how these cases illuminate and enable intensifying authoritarianism and the diminishment of democratic systems. Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. Out now from Verso Books. I warned you all that uh, the question of independence would certainly come up again. And in terms of the municipalist movement in in Barcelona and the left more generally in in Catalonia, to what degree has the independence movement and and the whole conflict over the national question um, marginalized left forces? I, I I read I think that that Colau's party the the um, Barcelona and Camus and the, also the left wing pro independence coup and Podemos's local party all suffered big time in recent elections in in the Catalonia. 
at Catalan level and at Spanish level, it's one thing and at municipal level, it's another. I mean, I think one of the really positive things about municipalism is that it allows people on the left with differing views on national questions, whether they be independence or other, or even European questions, you know, Euro, Euro, yes, or Euro, no, um, uh, to work together on a shared project based on local And that goals. happens here, people with, on different sides of the exactly, national question? Exactly. So in Barcelona in Comun, there are people who are pro, uh, anti and ambivalent about independence. Um, so in that sense, I think it's, uh, it's slightly uh, on the margin of the debate, but there's obviously an incentive for both uh, sides to bring that issue to municipal politics. So um, every stage in the whole uh, unfolding of the, the Catalan independence question, Ada Colau, the mayor of Barcelona, has had to take a position on all of these national issues because... That she has no vote on or or decision-making power over. Exactly. And she's pressured from the Spanish nationalists and and told that she and who tell everyone in Spain that she's a, a secessionist and that she's you know supporting independence and then the independence uh, pro independence parties say that she's a uh, an Espanolista kind of practically a Spanish fascist um, and and you know it's it's it's, it's kind of a tool Colau. used to to bash uh, anyone who who doesn't take uh, a stand uh, well doesn't kind of go all in on on one side or the other. I mean I think I think there's I think it, there's no question that the the independence debate is has created a squeeze on Barcelona and Comú. Um, the it's clear that the different political parties from Esquerra Republicana who kind of have done nothing throughout the entire mandate um, except kind of piggyback on any criticism of her. They do that. Um, Coop are constantly criticizing her for not being radical enough in everything, and uh, and then the you know Convergencia Union the, or Pedecat or whatever they're calling themselves these days, um, are the right wing Catalan nationalists will also pressure her for you know not being right wing enough, not being responsible, and then they also use this kind of identitarian politics to to put pressure as well. Now it's important to to bring out that Barcelona and Camus in its first years, uh, the first years of its mandate governed alongside, governed in coalition with the Socialist Party, the Spanish Socialist Party. Um, and in a sense, they did let the municipal politics become contaminated by the national debate when they submitted their pact with the Socialists to a vote among its militants and it came out no in this very heated moment uh, after the October referendum and after the implementation of 155, I think it was. Because the socialists had uh, supported 155 that's, on the national level. That's correct. And so so that split that. Now that was, I think, um, you know, I'm, I have no sympathy for the Socialist Party, but uh, Barcelona Camus' base, or their strongest base, a lot of it was in the, the in, in Novaris, uh, which is the neighborhood that was largely built by uh, migrant workers from the rest of Spain uh, Working class people is one of the poorest uh, neighborhoods, the one with the lower life expectancies, and so on. That was that was Barcelona and Camus' base, and they're not in favor of independence. And, and they've been moving towards Ciudadanos. And their polls recently are are swaying, at least in national elections, towards Ciudadanos, when they had clearly gone in favor of Encomu Podem. Um, and we'll see how it plays out municipal level. I, I'm hoping that the the advances, the progress that Barcelona and Camus has been able to make, and the investments that they made there 
and the real changes that you can see in those neighborhoods actually play out in their favor. But, but you know, that's the thing with national politics is that your considerations have less to do with your kind of material, um, you know, well-being, your own welfare, and more to do with these kind of abstract ideas of national solidarity. And when you when they broke with the Socialist Party, because this before Barcelona Camus, this was a socialist feud. Let's say it was a place where, it was a place you know it was it was where they always won. Um, I, I think it might have sent the the wrong message. So I think I, I actually think that the the independence debate has been has made a government that would otherwise have been very very popular uh, a, a bit less popular. Um, and 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 I think that's a that's a real shame personally because the whole point of the as as Kate so eloquently said the whole point of municipal politics was to be able to work in terms of common objectives and you know Colau has in 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 a very tangible sense worked in favor of the objectives of more democracy more participation you know we'll we'll try and get the you know the votes uh, you know we'll support the 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 actual vote of the referendum we'll stand against the, you know the Spanish government's imposition and so on. Uh, but it's just never enough when you're already on kind of the, the extremes of a nationalist. When debate. all of the oxygen sucked up by the national debate. That's right. Um, Becker, I want to zoom out and talk about the larger Spanish political scene. Uh, first, more on the Partido Popular and Rajoy. In Spain, there's not really a big new far-right party, though I think there is one new far-right party. Uh, to, to what degree is that because the the Pepe, which is again the successor to the Franco dictatorship, has taken up the space that's been occupied by the National Front in France, the AFD in Germany, Golden Dawn in Greece, various formations in Italy, etc. So a few a few years ago, there was a small party that called Vox uh, that was founded in order to basically take up the space on the very very far right in order to become a xenophobic party to hemorrhage votes for... It's a shame for there to be a void on the far right. <laughs> of course. But my reading of it is that the Partido Popular, uh, one of the incredible things about the Partido Popular is the amount of party discipline that has happened basically since the transition to democracy. So in Francoism, during, during uh, the Franco regime, uh, Franco often struggled to maintain these factions, to, to kind of settle these factions and, and have them all support at the same time uh, whatever policies he, he was pushing. So you have in Spain people on the far right. You have people who support national Catholicism. You have people who, going back to the 19th century, support Carlism. So another kind of uh, a particular interpretation of monarchical power. Wow, the right here is weird. You have, you have of course, <laughs> the centrists, right, which is what Ciudadanos has been tapping into, the technocrats. Right, you have the neoliberals. So, in other words, the Spanish uh, right wing is very eclectic, um, and the Partido Popular for forty years managed to kind of maintain party discipline and have them all kind of under this big tent uh, organization, which is now being uh, threatened uh, frontally by by Ciudadanos. And I think that what happened with the Partido Popular is that they've been able to, um, let's say make certain policies and direct these like particular policies to particular constituencies, right? So I, I mentioned earlier uh, the Catholic uh, uh, base of the Partido Popular and their kind of, um, their gestures toward uh, uh, in attempting to, for example, uh, um, 
uh, oh, uh, uh, to strike the the law for gay for uh, gay and le- gay marriage gay marriage to strike the law for abortion, right? And they would throw out these kind of let's say these crumbs right to to their particular constituents. And now they're not able to do that anymore, persis- precisely because uh, for a long time the Partido Popular would not touch uh, Spanish nationalism. Of course, their their policies were suffused with Spanish nationalism, but they would not. Uh, they would not uh, parade the flag around very often. They would not inv- explicitly invoke the the history of Spanish nationalism. And now, because of that challenge, it's you're seeing a, a slow fragmentation of all of these voting blocks that, for a long time, consistently voted for for the Partido Popular. And so, in other words, I think that the xenophobia w- was always there. I think the the refugee policy is just the most obvious uh, of these. Um, but it was always it was never uh, let's say thematized. It was never brought out into the fore uh, in the way that I think the Spanish national debate is going to kind of force uh, the Partido Popular to really uh, cater to its far-right uh, base. Yeah. I mean, I think with... Well, first, Vox is still around, and they just hired Steve Bannon. So I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there as like, I don't know if they're totally gone yet, but if they can split that vote up, I mean, that's going to be really weird. Um, and I don't think... So I wouldn't just put the 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 far right entirely in the camp of Pepe and entirely in the camp of Ciudadanos. There's actually something kind of new here in Spain that's very different from the Le Pen or AFD type of or Golden Dawn type of thing, where one party is just like, yeah, we're straight up fascist, um, and where it's primarily anti like anti-immigrant xenophobia is the the core issue. That's true. Yes. See, the thing is, far right parties tend to emerge in places that had very strong welfare states. And, um, and, and, and among a set of voters that were very um, linked to the welfare state, whether it was through industrial work uh, that has disappeared or, um, you know, receiving social, social protection in some way or another. Um, so by bringing out competition, um, you know, uh, between different uh, subaltern groups and pointing out immigrants, then you can kind of stoke these flames and say, ah, see, you're not getting your check because of these guys. Um, in Spain, Spain never really had that strong of a welfare state. Um, so, so that was one kind of thing that, that, was, that was there. But on the other hand, you know, the emergence of Ciudadanos takes place after the big scare, you know, with Trump winning. Uh, I mean, they were around, but when Trump wins and Brexit happens, it's in, they're very much, their, their rise is, is very much in the post-Brexit, post-Trump phase where, you know, Macron gets elected and people start to kind of be like, oh, I don't know if I really like this, you know, too much. Um, so they can play this game where they're like, okay, we'll, we'll support this far right measure. So we're going to take the hardcore identitarian part, but we're going to keep this sort of like loose morality um, that, that the right, that is not really, you know, we're going to take that from the Pepe and the Pepe can stay Catholic and all this kind of stuff. But then the Pepe can be kind of a little bit more welfareist, strangely. Then Ciudadanos. Ciudadanos is very like thoroughly neoliberal. Yeah, they're 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 one hundred percent. Well, they're whatever the surveys say. Sure. But uh, if they can squeeze that into a thoroughly like neoliberal technocratic type of thing, then great. Um, like that's that's their kind of modus operandi. So so I think that they're doing this thing of like cherry picking far right uh, policies. Um, they both seem to be in favor of taking healthcare away from undocumented immigrants, which is you know sixty percent of Spaniards. That meaning people that even vote right wing are against. Uh, not giving undocumented immigrants free universal health care, which is a, this was a law, I think the most xenophobic thing that the Pepe approved. That's something that both parties agree on. 
Um, so I, I don't know. And I, 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 I think Vox uh, with Bannon, they're definitely going to go for this immigrant thing. And I'm really hoping that it's not a huge, uh, it, it's not as um, profitable politically here as it was elsewhere. But, but we, we don't know. I think I'm just thinking about, you know, the the Spanish political spectrum and, and what's missing. And uh, I think I, I'm not so bothered about the fight, far right being missing in action. Um, but there is another kind of... I was joking. <laughs> right. But there is another kind of uh, political uh, profile that I think, although it's not mine, I think it's quite valuable in any political system, which is the kind of classical liberal this liberalism as in in the in sense of you know kind of free market but freedom of speech right like free what you do in your house is your business but the free market this kind of something that's quite the core in kind of uh, anglo-american yeah. uh, politics in spain just does not exist it's just like absent. so you just have yeah and 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 it's it's kind of there's not the right is just uh universally very repressive um and 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 that really is is missing from the debate and there's also you know the left although there is a uh, a libertarian left a kind of anarchist you know very liberal left let's say um there's also a left that is not so uh liberal in a social sense and that thinks that you know it's okay to ban things that are that you don't agree with you know uh, whether it be speech uh, <laughs> Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if probably in your in your you know hate speech or or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know, like bullfighting, right? Uh-huh. So we, we're against it, so we'll ban it. There's this this kind of liberal um, mm, culture is is not really uh, present in Spanish politics. No, I was just going to say that I I think I'm a little more skeptical than Carlos about about the power of of Vox. But one of the things that would be interesting and and I mean terrifying but interesting nonetheless uh, is that there are certain kind of very minoritarian, very small uh, social organizations that are that the far right has in Madrid especially. There's one called Hogar um, uh, Social, uh, which is comparable. If if people if your listeners know the Italian case, it's comparable to Casa Pau. Casa Bound, right, exactly. And so they haven't taken the step into electoral politics yet, yet they still organize uh, relatively sizable rallies every once in a while uh, in Madrid. And they're, they've increasingly been trying to put pressure on the Pepe in the past to, uh, to shift uh, to, to a more kind of virulent kind of far-right uh, politics. But again, they haven't taken the step yet. It doesn't seem like like they will, but that's still that is something that is, is present. And I imagine they're also taking advantage of the Catalan question to 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 push. I'm I'm not so I don't think so. I mean, it's so Casa or sorry, Hogar uh, Social is very uh, local in Madrid, um, and so them on the national question is they haven't they have a certain media presence, um, but it's still very limited. Uh, so their issues are mainly immigration, immigration primarily, uh, and again, it's a kind. It's similar to to other far far right movements in that they have a kind of a a social program, almost a social welfareist program, a very minor one, right? Free so, sandwiches for Spaniards. Exactly. So they have they have like lo, locales. Poco dichos para todos. Para españoles. No para todos. Exactly. Para algunos. Exactly. Fascist squatters. Weird. 
they have locales where they kind of uh, they do your kind of typical KKK welfareism where they hand out free stuff. They ha- they hand out kind of it's like food plus bombs. Ex- so food not bombs. Exactly. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But anyway, so they're they're not growing at the moment, and I don't think that they'll grow in the future. But they may decide to throw their support behind a political party if the Spanish nationalism questions really, uh, really becomes part of the political equation in Spain. So, um, the your point about liberalism, Kate, was really interesting and leads me to another thing I wanted to ask about, which is that there's not only political repression from the central government when it comes to the Catalan conflict, but but more generally, a, a rapper, Jose Miquel Arenas just fled the country after being sentenced to three and a half years in prison. Three and a half years after being convicted of, in his lyrics and maybe tweets, but just in words, whatever they were, glorifying terrorism, slander against the crown, which is apparently a crime in Spain, and issuing threats. Another rapper named uh, Pablo Asel was, did I pronounce that right? Asel. was sentenced to two years. I was shocked when I read about it. What what is going on? Um, well, this is what I was talking about before when 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 I was saying that there's very legitimate uh, criticisms of the Spanish state and not yeah. just the conservative current government. Um, a few years ago, I'm not sure exactly when the gag law was. The gag law uh, was approved, approved in 2012, 2013, and it went into effect in 2015. Right. So there was this whole series of measures that, you know, under the guise of uh, security were brought through, which uh, really clamped down on, on freedom of speech, freedom of protest. And we're starting to see now the a lot of the com- consequences of that as as these cases there's these are two cases but there's many cases of uh people who've protested and are in prison for various reasons and it's becoming um normalized almost um and it's pretty much un- is there another situation like this in western europe with so hungry. many political prisoners <laughs> western yeah western exactly I- <laughs> yeah. um what well, the, the 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 second to last thing that i want to um talk about is how the the right has dealt with or tried to exploit I, uh, t- the politics of terrorism in in Spain. Last year, there was an ISIS-inspired attack in Barcelona on Las Ramblas. And back in 2004, of course, there was the Madrid bombings. That led to the conservative, the Partido Popular being booted because... Voters miraculously, from the American perspective at the time, given what American politics looked like, actually saw the connection between Spanish support for the invasion of Iraq and the bombings in in Madrid, um, and that they could make that connection without saying, "Oh, the bombings are 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 good." Which, if you said that in the U.S. at the time, would be like, "Oh, you're excusing terrorism." Um, how how between now and then? Um, has the politics of terrorism played out? So one the major uh, difference is that back in 2004, you had ETA. You had uh, the Basque uh, radical uh, pro-independence uh, organization that used terrorism to to threaten the state, to, to create a secessionist movement, uh, but was 
still very kind of marginal, very kind of minor. It played, I think, a bigger role in the pan- Spanish uh, imaginary and the Spanish kind of sense of itself, the Spanish public sphere, uh, but uh, not so much of a not so much of a role. And especially, and now it's it's dissolved. So. And as I initially blamed, right, um, at the, for the bombing, right, right. right. So exactly. So the bombing was carried out uh, in the morning in the Atocha train station. Uh, and then the Spanish government very quickly came out and said, oh, ETA bombed the trains. And then it was, I mean, within uh, 24 hours, if not less, I think it was proved that, in fact, ETA had nothing to do with it. And it was Al-Qaeda. It. Right. And it was Al-Qaeda. Right. And so, I mean, one of the, I, I still, it's it's very confusing to me why the, the Partido Popular did this, because ETA even then had a very kind of calculated and very deliberate approach to its carrying out of attacks, which is that they would call in advance, that they would, there were certain markers that would suggest that this attack was an ETA attack, but yet the, the Spanish government at the time ignored it. But anyway, so now because uh, ETA has, is dissolved as, a, as a, an organization and has basically uh, decided that uh, now the only real way to to achieve Basque independence is through electoral politics. There's no uh, there's no uh, threat uh, within uh, Spain for for terrorism terrorism. So they think that they need to kind of scapegoat another uh, another group elsewhere, right? And I think that threat is more uh, manufactured uh, than it is than it is real. Yeah. I mean, I would say. It, it, both Becker and uh, Beckett and, and uh, Kate have have brought up very good points, particularly with the gag law, the national, the citizen security bill, as they call it. Oh, that's um, a charming it's, name. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great name that they actually borrowed from a concept again from Bolivia. Um, so, so when that was passed, it was actually tailored to the repertoire of movement, uh, the repertoire of collective action that the Indignados used. So the reason that they repress free speech so much and that they kind of attack public the use of public spaces because that's that's what that's what the indignados use they use twitter they used um they used occupation of public space they used squatting they used um you know blockades of evictions and all this kind of stuff in their repertoire so they started to criminalize that as a way of kind of creating this subject um this subject of 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 a dangerous subject for the spanish state right why do they do this because for a long time as i mentioned before the transition from Spain's dictatorship to its kind of constitutional monarchy involved translating an entire juridical structure to a more that that was born in a dictatorship to a more modern setting. So they kept actual courts that were in the in Franco's regime, and so that means that they built these figures around these these figures of subversion for a long time. It was Eta. Uh, and it was Grapple, communist terrorists uh, in, in the north. Who some of the, who at least one of the rappers, I think, was rapping in favor of. That's something. correct. Hassel would say kind of in his lyrics, uh, you know, come back, Grapple, this kind of thing, right? So um, so they started to kind of, you know, and that, that's it was built around these kind of figures. In the post-2011 period, they tried to go after Indignados. Their, uh, the Indignados were so peaceful and so kind of like friendly as a figure, it was really kind of ridiculous to, to do. So they started to target actually anarchists through the Operation Pandora, which was a big police raid of different anarchist groups that were, you know, uh, involved, you know, just in in anarchist kind of subculture or or counterculture. Um, And they would persecute them, but then that was so ridiculous because they weren't carrying out any attacks either. So now with the Catalan nationalist movement, they see this kind of uh, credible threat that can actually challenge the sort of the foundations of the Spanish state. And so they're starting to apply a lot of those laws. But then they also do it, you know, 
to people that are to Cassandra Vera, uh, a trans woman who's uh, you know had very kind of uh, transgressive kind of critical subversive tweets and blog posts. But I mean, we're talking about subversive tweets and blog posts. I mean, what ridiculous place have we moved to? Uh, in Spain, where, you know, the only reasonable point of comparison is someone like Viktor Orban. So, you know, I think this has caused a lot of international outcry, but for some reason in Spain, it has yet to become a definitive political issue. And I, I kind of disagree with Kate because there is a lot, I do think that there is kind of a, a libertarian streak to Spanish politics that's kind of anti-authoritarian, just kind of instinctively, um, it's not tied to political liberalism, but it, it, they do have a problem with, with restrictions of freedom of expression and yet there hasn't been this, this mobilization. It's just kind of expressed on social networks. And it's kind of a common sense. It's like, oh my God, it's really bad. But people, for some reason, will care more about the unity of Spain or care more about what their grandparents voted or what their pensions are. And, and it's then, that complicity that those ads I've seen in the subway here seem to be targeting. Uh, I think they say, mañana puede ser tú. That's like, right. Um, about the rap. And it's like, you know, and then explains the case in brief of the rapper. That's right. Just a footnote to uh, to this periodization, I think is really important to understand that there was a Spain before 2011, before the Indigenous movement, and then a Spain after the Indigenous movement is that in the in the fall, in the winter of 2011 is when the Partido Popular was able to get uh, a complete authority over the government where they had more than 50 percent. They didn't have to uh, rely on the Socialist Party. They didn't have to rely on other parties in order to pass laws. And so the things that they tried to do in those four years at, since since 2000 or in the four years after 2011 was to kind of push through, ram through uh, certain certain laws. And, and the, the Ley Mordaza, the gag law is, is certainly a, a product of that. So the the last topic I want to discuss is Podemos. And before we get into like the current crisis, if someone could just give a a brief overview of of what Podemos is, how it comes out of the Indignados movement, and what what it aimed to do to Spanish politics. Podemos is an internet based TV show that <laughs> turned into a very large left-wing political party. Um, this pod, so this podcast has a lot of potential. This podcast and the whole Jacobin Media Network could very well do that. And actually, you know, actually, the the it's funny because the Socialist Party, the Spanish Socialist Party came out of, it was funded by, by typesetters. So that was the first kind of branch of the worker movement um, that looked for representation in Spain. The rest of it was majoritarian anarchist. Um, but in any case, Podemos basically was, it came out of this TV show called La Tuerca that had Pablo Iglesias, Inigo Rejón, and a lot of other people, and notably a rap section, <laughs> because the Baltonic, the rapper who's, uh, you know, being threatened with prison, he's being threatened for a commission by Podemos, by La Tuerca, let's say, more than Podemos. They asked him to do a song about the monarchy, he did one, now he's facing a jail sentence. Um, so in any case, this this TV show... Um, created a lot of debate and it was like a cool place to kind of talk about the Indignados movement because they weren't in the Indignados movement. It was just a, a, an interesting place that was coming up to talk about some of the issues that were coming up and invite some of the main, you know, kind of main spokespeople to talk out, make some sense of what we were seeing. And so, you know, they started to engage in this very, you know, deep theoretical uh, reflection about, like, who is the political subject of emancipation in Spain today and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so you start to play with, like, 
you know, you'd see very high-level discussions about, you know, Ernesto Laclau's kind of theories on this. You would see this debate about like Tony Negri's kind of multitude approach and this kind of stuff. And it was all, you know, a kind of coded cryptic discussion about like, how do we turn this indignados thing into something that has like political um, consequences in the institutional setting? Um, so over time, you know, this, these are the folks that are kind of dedicating the most effort to making sense of, of analyzing the discourse, analyzing the rhetoric, analyzing the, the political form. And so, you know, the, that was basically where this came out of. And in, and in eventually the host of this show, Pablo Iglesias, who at the time he was just the moderator on the show, but we would make this joke that we called him the extreme center of the left because he would, you know, he would, he could talk to the institutional left and he could talk to the, the far left and all this, um, or the extra parliamentary left. And so he makes this jump first to a far right television channel as a, as a, as a guy who goes on and basically talks shit to all of the fascists on the TV. And that video goes viral and becomes a platform for this very good public speaker to take part in a bunch of other debate shows on mainstream TV. And so he becomes very quickly very popular, like this guy with the ponytail, looks kind of like Jesus, uh, <laughs> you know, saying all this communist stuff on TV. And people are just kind of being like, yeah, this guy kind of makes some sense, you know? And he's kind of like chulillo, we say, you know, he's kind of he's cocky. Uh, Madrid kind of macho kind of thing going on, um, which for some reason was very appealing to, to a lot of folks. And so eventually he kind of takes this popularity, this push, and very quickly he's like, okay, I'm launching a platform. If I can get 50,000 signatures, uh, I'm, we're going to start a political party for the European parliamentary elections. Um, he does it with the idea that like, well, maybe, you know, I'll get a seat in the European parliament and, you know, uh, we can do something. But then like, he joins with the Trotskyists in the Anticapitalistas party, and he joins with other people from the social movements and from La Tuerca. And this whole team that has slowly made the jump onto TV as like pundits suddenly is running for a party. And instead of getting one seat, they get five. And suddenly people are like, whoa, what's this? And a lot of excitement's kind of created, and these circles start to pop up, self-organizing assemblies all over, all over Spain and all over the internet. Um, to kind of capitalize on this energy that this is creating. So, um, so yeah, eventually they make the, to make a long story short, they make the jump to institutional politics. Uh, in their first elections, they really stunned people by almost evening with the Socialist Party. Um, and that's what year? And that, pardon? That, that, that's what year? This is in t 2015. Okay. And in, uh, I believe it was December. December of 2015. And then later in June 2016, they had another election where they sided with the United Left. And they actually kind of, the steam kind of went out because um, I guess they kind of signified themselves a little too much by going with the United Left. I don't know. There was a lot of different issues that kind of, um, that kind of took place there, in part becoming more of an institutional type of party and all of these kinds of questions. So since then, well, that must have been kind of plagued with infighting and all of the stuff that, that, that we like to do on the left sometimes. And we're kind of in this, in this strange yeah, phase so, right now. So, so, so currently there is this huge debate and scandal over Iglesias buying an expensive house in an expensive suburb. I believe, he says, because they have project-based learning in the public schools there. No. <laughs> no that's not why. Uh, that's that an yeah. article I read said that. Maybe that's not why. No, so, I mean, what, yeah, maybe, so, so, yeah. so what... But this is this is it sounds hilarious when I say all of that, but this is a huge debate and a crisis for 
Podemos? What's what's going on? So what? Uh, so Pablo Iglesias and his partner uh, Irene Montero, who is uh, presently the second in command uh, in Podemos. I th I don't know what exactly what her title is, but she is very powerful within Podemos. They bought a, a chalet, and that's important because uh, Spain during the 2000s had a huge uh, real estate crisis, which which happened in 20, 2008. But during the 2000s, they were building houses and building chalets in particular. So these kind of uh, smaller kind of but more bourgeois um, houses in the kind of often in the middle of nowhere, but sometimes on the outskirts of cities uh, that are more expensive, but that have, let's say, yeah, access to maybe a better a better public school, access to uh, certain resources that other houses... Something more unlike the model of the American middle-class suburb. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, so during the 2000s, you had lots of Spanish families that had uh, a certain, maybe a certain excess of income, and they are disposable income that they wanted to, to, to use to invest. And in Spain, as in the United States, there's this uh, there's this idea, maybe an ideology about house buying and about house ownership, home ownership. And so people bought up a ton of a ton of uh, houses. Uh, and then when that crisis happened because of Spain's uh, retrograde uh, economic laws, uh, these people still had to pay their mortgages despite declaring bankruptcy. And so declaring bankruptcy basically doesn't allow you to do anything. Uh, in Spain, as opposed to the United States and many other countries, and so I think that what one of the important debates that's happening in in Podemos is not only that uh, they bought a chalet, which is kind of very kind of personal stuff that often people on the left don't want to conflate with with politics, uh, but that this is in fact a symbol of the economic crisis that the Indignados were supposed to challenge, right, and who were supposed to address or redress. Kate, I th I think another issue is actually um, the 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 discourse of Podemos over the past few years, and in fact, even its own internal rules. What the the mayor of Cadiz has has said in an open letter to Pablo Iglesias is our code of ethics, uh, because Podemos has a code of ethics which limits the salaries of all of its elect elected officials and has various transparency requirements and recall me mechanisms and those kind of things. Um, what our code of ethics uh, says is that we have to live like ordinary people in order to be able to represent those those ordinary people. Like against this idea of a political class as something which, separate than the people it represents. Which is exactly what Podemos had railed against, is that this political class who has lots more money and doesn't understand what ordinary people are going through. So although they may not have broken the letter of the of the law, let's say, of their code of ethics, the spirit, you know, perhaps is... Um, is is under question. And I'd say another one of the important debates that's happening in Podemos is, in fact, uh, the idea to call... So what, what Pablo Iglesias and uh, Irene Montero did after this whole scandal broke was that they decided to call a consulta, basically a plebiscite uh, involving... Uh, a vote, vote of confidence, sure, that uh, involving all of the party membership. And so there's a huge debate over whether that is legitimate to what extent is that useful, right? Why didn't they take on their own ethical responsibilities? Why are they shuffling those off onto the people? And also, I think another question is, if this uh, consulta takes place, if it, uh, if, uh, it comes out that the vast majority or the majority of Podemos voters want to support Pablo Iglesias, want him to stay in power, 
Well, then that just strengthens the mandate of a party that has become very hierarchical, very top heavy uh, and very leadership oriented. So this basically fans the flames uh, in the Spanish public sphere of calling Podemos a populist party. If you're really not a populist party or if you're really trying to institute a different kind of politics, uh, then why are you relying on a plebiscite to strengthen your mandate? Yeah, it has this aspect of, of the embattled leader uh saying i will be vindicated by my my personal direct connection with the masses exactly yeah very much it 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 has this sort of perone type of model i mean you know that that i think is very very troubling to to people that are kind of in an anti-authoritarian left position or just left position um i think at the same time he's sort of banking on this idea that like you know, um, that he knows the social bases better than the actual party militancy. And I think that's that's something that the militancy has sort of underestimated at many turns with him. Like he's proven himself right about who they appeal to sometimes. As your introduction to this whole process demonstrates, he's a pretty savvy yeah, yeah. I mean, individual. He's, <laughs> he's a smart guy. He's he's a smart guy and he and he kinda knows how to make people at least a certain subset of, of folks uh, tick. And, you know, there's something... I, I I don't like that he submitted this to a plebiscite um, at all. I mean, I'm very much against it. And, um, and I think that it's very problematic that he's flouting the ethical code. At the same time, just if I take a distance and I look at what's going on right now in Spain where the current president is facing a real motion of no, a vote of no confidence because of a major corruption scandal and Podemos internally is kind of voting on whether or not their leaders can buy a house, it might actually look good for him, you know, which is which is really weird because it tells us that kind of like... The, left's, of, the left's destroying itself, potentially, I don't want to be too cynical, hopefully that won't happen, but the left is angling in that direction right now at a moment of opportunity when they should be on the attack. Because Rajoy, we haven't mentioned this, but one of... This is his second in command was just convicted. Uh, the whole party. Yeah, everyone's been indicted for no, the corruption. Whole, the whole party. <laughs> that, I mean, they've actually just ruled it. It's the whole party that that's wow. that's that's got this and problem. How many ministers of the economy since going back to the eighties? <laughs> yeah, no. So it's a, it's huge. And so so the question is, it's it, I'm not saying this so much as a critique of like, oh, the left is kind of destroying itself. I'm saying it more from the perspective of, you know. The, when we were in the Indignados movement and when we were building these kind of, uh, this kind of opposition that created the social context or the social climate that made these left-wing parties expedient or these civic platforms expedient, there was a very rich, very nuanced debate taking place about deeper political participation. And we got major support, up to 80, 90% support on specific things um, among the Spanish population. But it may not be that the people really wanted these direct democratic me mechanisms. They just wanted someone that kind of talks like them and all of this, you know, someone to actually represent them and to delegate responsibility to them. And I think that's kind of like, I don't know, from an anti-authoritarian perspective, that's kind of um, saddening. Uh, but but I don't know, we'll see how it plays out. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to get too hopeless or cynical. Totally. Um, and I think the situation in Spain is still better than in a lot of places um, for the left. So I think... Uh, As the big municipalist chunk in the middle of uh, this episode, I think, indicated, there's a lot of hopeful stuff going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's just a lot There's a lot to work for. It's just that we have to organize around it and we have to mobilize around it. And that's we're not going to just be able to 
to just sit back and watch, you know, watch the clock go. We, we have to constantly be, you know, um, mobilized and, and ready to pressure in favor of an emancipatory horizon. Um, well, Carlos Del Clos, Kate Shea Baird, and Bekir Seguin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Carlos Delclos is a sociologist, researcher, editor for Roar magazine, and the author of Hope is a Promise, From the Indignados to the Rise of Podemos in Spain. Becker Seguin is a professor of Iberian studies at John Hopkins and is currently completing a book on the cultural history of the Great Recession in Spain. Kate Shea Baird lives in Barcelona and does research and advocacy related to local democracy and decentralization. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after calling Ferdinand VII a despotic coward, a tiger with the heart of a hare, a man as greedy of authority as unfit to exercise it, a prince pretending to absolute power in order to be enabled to renounce it into the hands of his footmen, proud, however, of one thing, namely his perfect mastery in hypocrisy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, as does you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Last but not least, please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going.